This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. This year is the 10th anniversary of the podcast, 10 years of designers and other creative types talking about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Elle Luna about why she walked away from great design jobs with IDEO, Uber, and Mailbox. I will never forget sitting at my desk thinking, I can do anything with my time. Anything. Is this what I want to be doing? Here's Debbie Millman. Of all the big decisions we make, what to do for a living is often the most vexing. Do you go for your dream job or do you go for security? What if you don't know what you want? And what's the difference between a job, a career, and a calling anyway? These are the questions at the heart of El Luna's book, The Crossroads of Should and Must, Find and Follow Your Passion. El Luna is not a psychologist or a career counselor. She's a designer, a painter, and a writer, and all of these talents are amply demonstrated in this visually innovative and inspiring book. She joins me now to talk about the crossroads of should and must and about her own career. Eluna, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you so much for having me. So, Ellie, you were born in Dallas, Texas, and lived there for 18 years. You left to go to college in Nashville, Tennessee. I read that you did that because Nashville sounded exotic. Uh, really? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Growing up in Texas traveling around to the different parts of Texas, it's all so different and so vast. And the idea of going to school out of state, of being in a totally different environment with different people, the school that I went to was a liberal arts college, and there were people from all over. That community combined with that new location was terribly exciting. Now, you've described getting into the art program at Vanderbilt as haphazard. What was haphazard about it? The entire program was very raw. There was this openness about what art was, what it could be, what it wasn't. It was a very non-prescriptive environment, which for me really, really made art and the idea of making accessible because there was no understanding of what good looked like. It was really just the practice and the process of going into class. Why were you studying art? I thought you wanted to be a lawyer like your dad. In fact, I understand you thought there was something romantic about being a lawyer after watching your dad argue cases. Oh, yes. Growing up as a little girl, I'll never forget. My mom pulled me and my brother out of class one day and we were all dressed up and she took us down to the Dallas County Courthouse where my dad was going to argue a really big case. I remember being so excited to go into this old building filled with so much knowledge and history. So many people had been in this space and to sit on the old wooden benches and listen to my dad argue this case on this particular day was exhilarating. And in that moment to see him give closing arguments to a case, to see him do that speech was creative and exciting. And I just fell in love with it on the spot. But I think I loved the theater of it and the communication of it much more than I did the act of being a lawyer, which it took me a good uh, 20 years to figure that out. I ended up going on to apply to seven law schools at the end of, of undergrad 
in applying to all of those, I think that in my essays, I must have just said, I don't want to do this. Please, <laughs> please don't accept me. Don't let me in because that was the case. One after the next, I got all these little tiny envelopes. We all know the, the, the story of the little envelope. Yep. And the first four words were the same in every single one. We regret to inform. Uh, it seemed like a big setback, but it ended up being a great gift. Instead, you applied to both RISD and the Art Institute of Chicago and got into both. That was quite a turn of events. Which school did you decide to go to? I ended up deciding to go to the Art Institute of Chicago. The program there was uh, titled Visual Communications, although I didn't start off in that program. I started off in the film program and was making these very obscure art films and having a, a wonderful time Although I had this incredible professor, uh, Shelley Fleming, she said to me one day, Elle, you spend more time looking at your actual film with your hands, looking at the unique frames and the moments between the frames than you do ever projecting a film. And she said, have you ever thought about making a book? What an amazing insight. She could see this behavior that I was doing and immediately apply it to another discipline. And so I took my story, I put it into book form, and just like that, it was off. You started out studying film, but then you switched to design and then finished your degree with a major in conceptual storytelling. At that point, what were you hoping to do? Oh, I don't know. That's when you begin to panic, right? <laughs> yes. That's the, oh, wow, now I have to join the world and really get this thing going. And I think that's when we begin to navigate how are we going to make it all work. And for me, I had heard about this magical little place that seemed like often the, the forest somewhere called IDEO. Small, and magical, little you know, hole in the wall. <laughs> totally. And IDEO, it just, there were all of these different people from diverse backgrounds. There were people um, doing all kinds of wondrous things that seemed to have a place there, somehow solving very large global pressing problems. And the fact that a violinist would have a role on a project dealing with some sort of a challenge with a client Whatever the company was that enabled that kind of collaboration, I wanted to be a part of it. You saw a job opening in the Chicago office of IDEO in a post wherein they stated they were in search of a storyteller. Two weeks after you saw the ad, you started working there. That must have been some job interview you had. Well, this is a secret. Okay. Are you ready? I am. Oh, my goodness. I lean in. Okay, so do you want to know why I think I got this job? Yes. This is This is the dirty secret. So... IDEO's office was in Chicago, but technically it was in Evanston. And they advertised their job on AIGA's website. And every designer is going to AIGA to look at their job postings. And that's where I went. And there was no listing under IDEO Chicago. But if you changed your search to IDEO Evanston, which is a very, very small little community north of Chicago where Northwestern is, if you change your search, that job posting came up. So I just don't think anybody else saw it. <laughs> so that's my big secret. So I quickly applied. I quickly got in for an interview. And I went and I presented a lot of unresolved work. I presented, I think, more the questions that I was asking than a lot of answers because I didn't know. I was, I was young and I wanted to learn. And I wanted to be a place at a place and surrounded with other people who were also asking interesting questions. And so uh, that's what I brought to the table. And I felt like I was able to kind of find my people. You were there for several years. What was the biggest or most important thing you learned at IDEO? Wow. 
The most important thing I learned at IDEO is the act of collaboration, teamwork. The wonderful, diverse teams that would come together at IDEO, you'd have an engineer, an architect, a writer, a graphic designer, all of these people coming together to solve a problem. And this is the magic that happens. You get those folks around a table, all looking at the exact same challenge, and everyone sees the answer differently. And at first, this causes a lot of strife. And you think, no, no, how could you not see it like this? But I've drawn it this way. And what then begins to happen is a dance. And this is the magic of iteration. This is the magic of things beginning to become larger than the sum of the parts. That's when ideas can really take off. The end product is so much greater than just one person's ideas. And to see all of those different viewpoints, when you can finally all sit around a table and point to something and everyone at the table say, yes, 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 that's the magic. You decided to leave IDEO several years after you had gotten this dream job without another job in the wings. That's scary. What made you decide to do that? At this point, you had moved to San Francisco to work in their San Francisco office, which is magical as well. I've been there. It's an incredible awe-inducing environment. What made you decide to leave? When I got to San Francisco, I fell in love with the spirit of entrepreneurship and the startups in these very nimble, small teams that could go from an idea on a post-it note all the way through to an implemented product that anybody could download on their phone or online in like six months. We had been working with these major clients who have massive organizations, and to create change within those, often we were looking at years, if you were lucky. And to work with a small team became very interesting, and so I began to wonder about that. So I started doing a little bit of freelance here and there, trying to see if I even had what it took to take screens and ship them to engineers and see what that looked like. And eventually, when I began doing a lot more work on nights and weekends that was really getting me up in the morning than I was doing during the day, I decided, okay, we can either do more of this work at IDEO or I can take the leap and go do that work with startups and maybe one day go back to IDEO. So that's how I talked about it with IDEO. And they said, cool, we're not at the moment doing that active work. So go and play and have fun. See you in a couple of decades yeah. if we're lucky. <laughs> Talk about how you got your big consulting job at Uber. It was one of my favorite oh, stories my that I read in doing my research on you. Well, it involved whiskey. <laughs> Lots. Like 3 a.m. <laughs> and a party and long ball gown. I was at a after-after party. You'd never want to be at the after-after. Although in this case, it was a good, good decision. It was the after-after party for an award ceremony. And I saw the CEO of Uber, Travis, standing at the bar. But then Uber was just a small team. There were maybe a dozen people sitting around a conference table. There was a flicker in Travis's eye. It was this very tiny team. Travis was at the bar. I walked right up to him and I said, hi, I use your app. I love using it to call a car, but I hate it and I'd like to make it better. And he looked at me and he said, oh yeah, how would you make it better? List three ways. On the spot. On the spot. And oh man, without missing a beat. I looked at him and I said, I'd redo the logo, I'd change the rating system, and I would redo the entire app. And he started laughing. And he said, well, would you like to come in and fix it for me? And I said, of course I would. He said, come in on Monday at 8 a.m. 
I said, well, I can't do it alone. He said, who do you need? I said, I need a team. He goes, well, I'll have them here. He flew in two other designers, one from New York, and they were all there at 8 a.m. on Monday. I remember walking in thinking, this is a joke. This is a bad joke. Did you call and confirm? Were you... No. Uh, did you, you just showed up at 8 a.m. as he suggested or, or I asked. showed up. And he was waiting for you. He was waiting. Did he know who you were? Did he know your background? Or did he just see you and get a vibe and take a chance? I think maybe romantically in my mind, I'm like, oh, he just saw me and it just happened. But I'm sure he probably Googled me. <laughs> So the app that you then developed won the 2013 Fast Company Innovation by Design Award for the transportation category. It actually beat out Mars Rover and Tesla. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. You were in and out of Uber at that point and went to take a full-time job at Mailbox. What were you hired to do there? Mailbox wasn't Mailbox when I first started talking to the team. What was Mailbox it? was this other product called Orchestra, and it was a shared to-do list app on the iPhone. And they needed some extra design support. I had a meeting with one of the co-founders, and we got to talking. And very quickly, I began to realize that maybe there's something else here. Maybe there's actually an idea beyond this idea because looking at the numbers, it wasn't going so well. And so I started as a freelance designer consulting. And I just started to fall in love with the idea of where this thing that was orchestra could begin to go. And as soon as we began humming around this idea of mail and redesigning email from the ground up for the iPhone, at the time, nobody had done it. And it was really a silly idea. We were a small team. We were basically saying that we wanted to go up against Apple and Gmail and these monstrous teams with huge budgets, and we were, you know, 10 folks in a room in Palo Alto thinking that we could actually receive the keys to people's email and do well with that. So we took the challenge, and once I started falling in love with it, I joined the team full-time, and then I was there for about a year. And what employee number were you? Oh, I don't know. I think I was maybe 9 or 10 or 11. Mailbox was then acquired by Dropbox, and then you decided to leave again. At this point, you're 31 years old. What makes you decide to do it again, to create something wonderfully successful and then say thank you? Bye-bye. Are you seeing a pattern here? I am. <laughs> and I want to understand it and I want to live vicariously through it. Mailbox was going so well. And from the perspective of Having a brand at your fingertips that's growing, having a product that you're bringing to life screen by screen, having a website that you're also bringing to life, getting to touch all of those visual elements from a design perspective was exhilarating. And you are literally defining how people are going to spend all of their time on their phone every day all the time doing their email. It was a profoundly exciting challenge Except somewhere along the way, I started having this dream. It was a recurring dream, and at first I couldn't make much of it. This is what the dream was. I would walk into a room that had concrete floors and really, really tall white walls, and it was like they had lights inside of the walls. They almost seemed to be glowing. And there was a stretch of warehouse windows running the length of one of the walls and a mattress on the floor. That was it. One room. One room. 
And in my dream, I sat down on this concrete floor, and I would just sit there, and I would do nothing. And for the time that I was in that space, I was out of time. It was a deep feeling of peace. And then I'd wake up. And how often were you having these dreams? I had a couple a week for months. Oh, my goodness, Elle. My recurring dreams are about mice. (laughs) You're having this glamorous dream about a white room with warehouse windows. Um, I've done a little bit of reading about your dreams, and and you write about how Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein because she dreamt it. The tune for the song Yesterday by Paul McCartney was something he heard in a dream. What did you think about this dream? Did you feel compelled to bring it to life, to make it come true? I had never had a dream and then thought much of it, especially uh, I hadn't remembered very much of it in the morning. And a lot of people don't remember their dreams. I think if you think about your dream within five minutes of waking, you can uh, capture it. But this dream kept coming back again and again. And one day I was telling a friend about the dream, and she asked the question that totally turned my life inside out. She said, have you ever thought about looking for this dream in real life? So what did you do? I went and looked for the dream in real life. How do you find an apartment with concrete floors, warehouse windows, white walls, and a mattress on the floor? That was the question. And to be totally frank, I had no idea what I was really looking for. I didn't know if this was a studio space, if this was a business space, if this was a roommate's house, if this was where I was intended to go live. I didn't know. But I had this instinctual feeling. I don't know if you've ever felt like this in your life, that something was just, it just had to happen, that it was inevitable. And... Just as I was searching for it, it was searching for me too. I had that kind of a feeling. And so I went on to Craigslist and I began searching for this room. I didn't tell anybody about this search because it felt ridiculous, right? Like I've had this dream. I'm going to look for it in real life. And I started looking for it day after day. What were the search criteria you were using? Oh, my goodness. Any and all search criteria. Large white room, barn. I mean, it ran the gamut. And I was looking at the thumbnails. And one day, I'm scrolling through Craigslist, and I saw it. It was so small on my screen. And I will never forget the feeling. I was sitting in my desk chair, and my eyebrows go up just like they are right now. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's it. It, I even have chills right now. Experiencing something happen in real life that you experience in a dream is a very weird feeling. And it was literally map for map, except for the mattress on the floor. It was the space, and there was an open house the very next day, of course. And so I went to the open house. I put in my application. Two hours later, I got a phone call. I got the apartment, and I moved in two weeks later. At this point, did you decide to leave your commercial career behind? At this point, I was still working well over 40 hours a week at Mailbox. What did you think you were going to do in the white room? Well, I didn't know until I showed up. On my very first night there, I kind of reenacted the dream moment, right? I thought, okay, well, if I sit down on the floor, I'll feel that peace, right? So I sit down on the concrete floor, and I look around, And unexpectedly, I began to panic. And I looked around the entire absurdity of the moment and 
really not knowing what I was doing or why or what it was all about, came crushing in on me. So I asked the room, the room that had called me to this moment, and I said out loud, why am I here? And as clear as day, the room replied and said, it's time to paint. I had painted often as a kid. I had painted uh, all through undergrad. I painted through grad school. And somewhere along the way, the act of using my hands to make work was replaced by predominantly working within the computer. And somewhere along the way, the paints were put into a box and never moved to that next apartment. And so the next morning I woke up, I went to the art supply store, I rebuilt my toolkit from the ground up, all the familiar things, you know, all these memories are coming racing back as I'm scanning the colors, the brushes, you know, I just knew which brush, I knew what type of paper, put it all together. And I went home and I began painting. And I basically painted every instant that I wasn't at work. On nights and on weekends, I was not sleeping very much. It was highly unsustainable. And if I wasn't at work making icons and working on mailbox, I was at home covering all of my clothes in paint. Did you feel at this point the time was ready for you to make the leap? Hmm. There was a very specific moment. We were launching mailbox, and it was launch day. There were balloons everywhere. Twitter was humming with people who had downloaded the app. Things were going really well. From a design, entrepreneurial perspective, the launch was wildly successful. And I will never forget sitting at my desk thinking, I'm 31. I'm getting older. I can do anything with my time. Anything. Is this what I want to be doing? Do I want to take these ideas and now put them onto Android and onto the web and onto all these other platforms. I can do it. Is that what I really, really want to be doing with my time? And it was just crystal clear. I had to go paint. I had to go do it. And I figured if I looked at my finances and tried to get real smart, I wanted to see, could I buy myself a little bit of time to just play, to give it a go, to see if I could make a living as a full-time working artist, or if there was another option that got me closer to that reality. And I will, I will never forget sitting at my desk. A huge smile crept over my face. I felt so liberated by how clear the choice was. I, choice is a wrong word. It was just so obvious. It was naively obvious to go and to do it. And I remember thinking, wow, wow. Now it's just a logistical series of decisions, getting things lined up, getting things in place. We're going to do this. Then you met the street artist and gallerist Ian Ross, and he helped push you to another corner of your path in this direction. What happened when you met Ian? Ian and his wife, Danielle, have a gallery space in San Francisco where they show a lot of street art, trying to really bridge gallery and street experiences. I am not a street artist, but Danielle reached out to me and she said, what are you doing with all of this art? I see you posting it on Instagram because I was posting all of it for better and for worse on Instagram every day, all the time. Danielle said, what are you doing with all this art? And I said, well, I'm either painting over it or throwing it away. Stop 
that immediately, she said. I want you to come to the gallery and have a pop-up show. We have a show ending and a show beginning, and there's three days in the middle. And I would love for you to come in and just mount a show. And that moment taught me so much about how important it is to get our work out of our studios, up off our desks, off the floor, off the wall, and to create an entire experience, an entire mounted body of work, and to see it off of the dirty floor, and to see what larger story is being told. And that particular show had 60 pieces of new work created in about six weeks, and the title of it was Far From Shore. What made you decide to start putting the work up on Instagram to begin with? I had a friend who came over to my studio, saw the giant mess I was making, and he said, Elle, I have to break it to you. You're doing terribly interesting things in here, but you keep posting photos of wine glasses in Sonoma. <laughs> when are you going to start sharing your real life? And at that, the next morning, I thought, okay, I'm going to share one piece of art. And I drew a man's portrait on the train. And he had this great handlebar mustache, and he was telling me all these wonderful stories about his grandmother, and I thought, I'm going to draw his portrait, and then at the end, I'm going to ask if if I can post it on Instagram. And so I did. I posted it. And I think after that post, every single Instagram post was something, for the most part, that was being created in the space. I want to talk with you a bit about risk and how you've tolerated it. You've said... I believe that when you step into uncharted territory, you are also stepping into total abandonment, potential humiliation, and a space where nothing is guaranteed. There's no case study or roadmap. What was the most challenging thing that you had to confront in yourself? The most challenging thing I had to confront in myself was this little voice in my head that ran all day long and said the most unthinkable things like about, okay, so for example, working on a piece, it's horrible. It's horrible. It's horrible. This is awful. This is awful. This, what are you doing? Why would you do that? But other people haven't done it that way. What are they going to think? Oh, you just stole that from somebody else. Oh, that's not your line. You just saw that in a painting. You are not original. It goes on and on and on. It's a monster. And It will continue to stay there. Actually, it continues to grow because we continue to feed it. We continue to let it go into these horrible, dark, spinning cycles. And you get to a point, I got to a point where eventually you just have to say, okay, you have got to find your place. This has got to stop. And that duel that happened within my own head, you could see it through the work. The early paintings I was doing were broken and brutal and intense. I remember Danielle at the gallery saying, do you think you could do some paintings with color? (laughs) (laughs) These are very intense uh, paintings, but that's really where I was in my life. Far From Shore was an apt title for the show. I felt very far from shore and I felt very much like I was drowning. I felt like I was in the middle of the ocean swimming and I had no idea where I had come from. I had no idea where I was going and I was just swimming and it was getting dark. Interesting, because I see so much joy in the work that you're doing now. Yes. Let's talk about your new book. The Crossroads of Should and Must, Find and Follow Your Passion. 
It started as a post on Medium. What was your motivation in writing an article online about the crossroads of should and must? Remember that day, sitting at my desk, launch day at Mailbox? That moment was a crossroads moment in my life. Sitting there in the midst of a job that I loved with people who I loved working with, and I've also got this white room that I'm painting in. I have all of this activity happening in my life, and it was all very desirable, but it was unsustainable. And sitting at my desk, when that smile came over my face, when I thought, oh, it is so obvious what I need to do, that was the feeling of must. That was the feeling of being at this crossroads between what I should do and what I had to do, what I was compelled to do unavoidably. And choosing to paint was my must moment. It was a very big crossroads moment in my life. The post that you wrote went viral, like uber viral, millions and millions of hits nearly instantaneously. I remember being very moved when I first read the piece online. Did the piece going viral surprise you or scare you or both? It totally scared me because I thought there was something wrong with my phone. (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. I share things online every day all the time on a lot of social networks, many posts on Medium. The fact that this one hit and began getting shared all over the place totally caught me off guard. How did the book come about? It's not just a book that you've written. It's a book that you drew, painted, collaged. You put the entire thing together. The whole thing looks like it's made by hand. How, how did the book come to be? The book came to be after the post on Medium, which was many, many images After seeing what a fast read that was for folks and how the images and the text could play together so well, when we decided to extend the post into a book, which happened probably six months after the Medium post went out into the world, it just felt obvious, again, that that word, this obvious, inevitable, that the book should be half words and half pictures. I'd like to read a passage from your book about shoulds and musts so our listeners really understand the construct. There are two paths in life, should and must. We arrive at this crossroads over and over again, and every day we get to choose. Should is how other people want us to live our lives. It's all of the expectations that others layer upon us. Sometimes shoulds are small, seemingly innocuous, and easily accommodated. You should listen to that song, for example. At other times, shoulds are highly influential systems of thought that pressure and, at their most destructive, coerce us to live our lives differently. Must is different. Must is who we are, what we believe, and what we can do when we are alone with our truest, most authentic self. It's that which calls to us most deeply. It's our convictions, our passions, our deepest held urges and desires, unavoidable, undeniable, and inexplicable. Unlike should, must doesn't accept compromises. Choosing must is the greatest thing 
we can do with our lives. L. If must is so great, why don't we choose it every day? Must is fantastic. And must is just on the other side of should. Should is this world of expectations. It's like a camouflaged force. That's one of the tricky things about should is that it can kind of creep in there when you're not looking. It's easier. It is easier. And it's it's this sort of invisible force moving against us, almost like trying to swim upstream. Should is the river going one way, even though you have to swim in the way you are, you have this force against you. And should oftentimes comes very early on in life. Uh, it can come from the time into which we're born, the society or the community into which we're born, the body into which we're born. It could be the advertising. It could be a lot of different things that happen early in life that really take that trajectory and er, click it in a different way and have us often running a different race than the one that we were intended to run. Interesting that it seems as if the should is easier. But I really contend that you have to work as hard at doing something you don't like as something you love. Somehow it's that choice that feels more difficult. Totally. I love that. There can be a lot of peace in living your life in a very pleasant way in the life of should. And because you're satisfying a lot of objectives, you're satisfying a lot of usually system-held beliefs, and you're making usually a lot of people very happy. If you feel like your life or someone else's life is living in the world of should, but they're happy, cool. It's for the folks who begin wondering what's on the other side of that. What else is out there? It's the, that itching, that kind of burning, that slight beginning of dissatisfaction. Absolutely. You write how must feels inherently selfish at first. Why is that? Because the journey is within. The journey is inward. That can feel conceptually selfish. Talk a little bit about the difference between what Stefan Sagmeister talked about in his TED Talk that you reference in your book, the difference between a calling and a career and a... Job. And a job. Yes. Interesting that that's the one I forgot. Love it. <laughs> he defined them as different things. And what really caught me was that they were different. I never thought about these as different. A job, he says, is something done from nine to five, typically done for pay. A career is a system of advancements over time. And a calling is something that we do for intrinsic motivation, something regardless of pay. And listening to that TED Talk and asking this question was really the one that began poking at my discontentment, which was, which of these do I have? A job, a career, or a calling? With my projects, with my work, both paid and unpaid, how do things map across these three categories? And that was a tremendous exercise because some of the work that I assumed was fitting in the calling category was actually in a different spot. In your book, you state that throughout your life, you frequently felt that there was a heavy 
lingering stigma surrounding counselors, therapists, and self-help. And even worse was when a person actually admitted attending therapy. Have your thoughts on this changed? No. Let's say there's a toolkit about our own psychology, how to get to know it better, how to wrestle with our own psychology, how to uh, navigate the terrain of all of the experiences, emotions, thought patterns, behavior patterns that we have in our lives. What a tremendous, tremendous impact that that entire psychological space has on our day-to-day lives. And the ability to shift one part of that is like changing out your prescription and your glasses or suddenly getting glasses or fixing your eyesight altogether. It's tremendous. In the book, I compare having a therapist to having a trainer at the gym. It's really no different. The trainer works your muscles. Your therapist works the organ that thinks it's running the show, the brain, and really the force that's really running the show, which is the spirit. If we could begin talking more about the power of psychological health and psychological empowerment and getting to know our own selves better, and if that stigma continues to lift, I believe that we will all be in a much, much better spot individually, which means we raise the entire community. What is the role of solitude in following your must? Solitude is really missing with the role of technology now in our day-to-day lives, solitude is all but gone. We are so busy, and we are addicted to being busy. It's a badge. It's a cultural badge now. It is. Solitude is so important. If we want to connect to our must, if we want to begin to hear that voice inside, if we want to connect more to our intuition, to um, the force of must, we have to find solitude. Now, that's both a physical location, having a space. It doesn't have to be a studio or a, a white room from your dreams. It could be a park bench. It could be a spot at the public library. It could be just a candle that you light that marks a sacred practice. It also has to be a psychological safe space. So you can't be interrupted. You're not available for repair people coming over or kids that need you. You have to ask for help. I need to carve out this time. I need this for my own health, for my own wellness. And to be alone, even if you have a family, even if you have a partner, to have alone time, to claim time for yourself is so important because that's the time when you can connect to yourself. What about the role of money? You outlined that one of the biggest concerns people have about achieving a sustainable must is money. How can people realistically figure out what to do about that? There are two types of money in the world. Must have money and nice to have money. And I just did this the other day. I put out a piece of paper at the top. I titled it money. And underneath, (laughs) must have money over here, nice to have money over here, go. And I set the timer. I use a timer from Ikea, a kitchen timer, 10 minutes. Almost anything can be done in 10 minutes. Set that timer. Otherwise, you know, I'm off checking Instagram, right? Keep me focused. (laughs) Look at the timer. It works. Fill out those lists. And the most surprising thing is the must have money is always smaller than we think. But I want to highlight around money, it's been an an interesting dance with this topic since the post came out and then to the book. In the post, I didn't talk about money at all. It was very much must, must, must. And after thinking about the role of money in our lives and extending it into the book, I spent a lot of time on it. 
in particular because if we want to find our callings, we do not have to quit our jobs. And just because we do something for pay doesn't make that work dirty. There is dignity in all work, and we get to be creative with how we combine a job, a career, and a calling in our lives. Maybe we have um, a calling that we do on nights and weekends, or maybe we do it full-time and we get paid for it. The great news is there's no right answer, and there's no wrong answer. It's just about what's right for each person's obligations and their lifestyle. And sometimes the self-generated work that you do can evolve into something that's more full-time. That's when things get really exciting. What about people who think they're past their prime in finding their must? Any advice for them? Oh, totally. If you think you are past your prime in finding your must, talk to Julia Child. She was, let's see, 40 years old when she finally discovered her love for French cooking. 40 years. She published uh, Mastering the Art of French Cooking in her mid-40s. Laura Ingalls Wilder, author of the Little House on the Prairie series, she wrote that book, her first one, at the age of 63. God bless. Isn't that awesome? It's amazing. And Grandma Moses, who actually lived here and worked here in New York City, at the age of 70, when her arthritis got too bad for her to continue her knitting, she decided to pick up the paintbrush because it was easier for her to hold. And at the age of 100, she had an exhibit at MoMA here in New York with all of her paintings. It is never too late to honor your must. What is the one thing everybody listening to the show today could do right now to begin acknowledging or following their must? If you want to find your must, find 10 minutes. 10 minutes. That's it. The reason 10 minutes is so hard is because we are so busy. Find 10 minutes and make it sacred. Claim that you're going to have that sacred time for and by yourself. Put it on the calendar. And when you arrive at that 10-minute chunk, the question that people ask is, well, what do I do once I get to that 10 minutes? Do I write? Do I? I would say there's this wonderful Rumi quote, let yourself be silently drawn by the strange pull of what you really love. It will not lead you astray. El Luna, thank you for being on Design Matters today. Thank you so much for having me. El Luna's incredible new book is called The Crossroads of Should and Must, Find and Follow Your Passion. And to follow El Luna and what she's thinking, go to her Tumblr, elluna.com or choosemust.com. This year, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman. I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. 